Welcome to the pre-snap motion podcast. I am Dan Pizzuta, writer and editor, Shark Football Analysis. I'm joined here, as always, by Rich Rebar. Rich, how are you doing? Dan, what is happening? You know, we're, it's officially summertime. And, you know, it's, it's been kind of a, a, a weird, unique summer for all of us. But uh, I, don't, I don't know, how's your summer going? What kind of stuff are you doing? Uh, you're in like the Jersey area, right? Yeah, I'm in Hoboken, just right right outside of the city. Uh, So it's been uh, very warm with not a lot to do. Our restaurant's just opened. Went to a a restaurant the other night where there were uh, no people. We kind of went to one where it was nice, tucked away in a a corner that not a lot of people in Hoboken go to. There's a lot of people in like the main bars trying to stay away from all of those restaurants, but got a nice little outside dinner with absolutely no one else around. So best of both worlds there. Uh, That's... That's basically it. That's that's really all we all we can do right now, and sit and wait and, and hope that, that everything else is going to get better a little <laughs> sometime soon. Yeah, I'm still waiting to get a haircut. Uh, I'm still putting that off. I haven't braved those that yet, but this is definitely the longest I've gone without a haircut in probably twelve to fifteen years. So uh, I'm I'm itching to get out there and finally get a haircut here. Yeah, I, uh, I've back in my high school days went quite a while without one, but uh, not not so much since I you know became an adult and kind of thought about what I looked like uh, more more often than not. Uh, but I think I, I have one next week. Uh, you guys can't see me on video, but I have a hat on right now. It's kind of gotten to that point where it's almost a necessity um, for, for, for appearances. Um, but let's, uh, let's get into some, some football talk. So we actually have some news, uh, not great news, uh, but something we're going to have to touch on for fantasy football. Cause it is a pretty big deal. Um, on Friday, Debo Samuel suffered a fractured foot. Um, we don't really know the timeline. There were some people who were trying to say, yeah, he'll be back in, in 10 weeks. Uh, but we kind of know with these Jones fractures that usually does not come back at, at the shortest time frame. These guys will, will try to test it early. Typically, will get hurt more often when, when they come back. So how, Richard, are you, are you treating this Jones fracture? How are we going to handle Samuel? And how are we going to handle really the, the rest of the wide receivers uh, and the passing options on the 49ers? Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I have no medical background. I just know that when it comes to fantasy football, a lot of people have died on the injury optimism hill by, you know, painting the, 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 the lightest brush of things, you know, saying, well, this guy's a discount, everything's priced in. But uh, I typically, if a guy's already hurt and he's hurt in the preseason, it definitely signals that they're probably going to get injured at some point in the regular season as well. So I tend to kind of just blacklist those guys and kind of stay away from them unless it's like something really cheap, uh, you know, and like a, just something like I said, a significant significantly priced out, but I tend to stay away from those guys. And then when you factor in just the, this injury history and kind of go down the names of the guys that have had this in recent years, Sammy Watkins, Des Bryant, Julian Edelman, Devontae Parker, uh, Greg Olson, like dealt with it for a couple years and never really got, became the same player. I know he's a little older, um, but just, yeah, it, it is really not been friendly to these guys, especially their first year back. Like you said, a lot of times these guys come back early uh, from this injury and they tend not to do well. The 49ers had a scare with this last year where Trent Taylor, obviously not a higher profile guy like Debo Samuel, but uh, he ended up ha- having to 
get shut down for the season uh, at some point because he tried to rush things, had to have a second surgery. So, I mean, probably if you are still in on Debo Samuel and you want to get that discount, you're kind of, I think your best case scenario is you hope that he just gets put on the PUP and kind of doesn't get afforded the opportunity to come back early. 49ers just say, well, we're a good enough team. We'll make his recovery as long as possible. We can get through without him. Uh, he didn't take over until kind of like the halfway point of last year as like the lead wide receiver in that offense. But he was kind of a guy that was kind of not really – I kind of had one foot in, one foot out on him anyways. I mean, even those last 12 games when he led the team in wide receiver targets, he was only averaging 6.1 targets per game. Uh, over the course of the, the season, that would have been just 46th among wide receivers. So there was definitely some touchdown regression that was going to pull pull for him. Uh, but he was kind of a guy that was kind of not really paying up on the sticker price anyways. Uh, it's interesting to see how he affects things. Obviously, we're still in on George Kittle, and this helps George Kittle. We don't need to really talk about how good George Kittle is. Uh, the first-round pick, Brandon Ayuk, uh, you know, he was going to get kind of that elevation with e- Emmanuel Sanders leaving. Now this does help him as well, kind of just accelerates his involvement and his necessity to get him involved early on. I mean, this is a guy that's really good after the catch. You know, last year he was under just 11 yards per uh, yak per reception. And when you look at what the 49ers, how they operated, I mean, this is an all-yak offense. Jimmy Grapple had the highest rate of passing yardage come from yards after the catch. You know, Theo Samuel, George Kittle. So, I mean, Brandon Ayuk fits right in with what they want to do offensively. And But if you're looking at a guy, I think, that, that takes over the role that Debo Samuel had and you can kind of get some of those creative touches, I mean, they're going to have Jalen Hurd back. Now, this is a guy, too, that also, like Debo Samuel, well, you go back, it's just injury after injury going back into his collegiate career. But this was a guy that was a converted, you know, collegiate running back at Tennessee. I mean, this is a guy with 2,800 collegiate rushing yards, 23 rushing touchdowns, you know, 637 career rushing attempts in college. So he has some of that, you know, creative use for him as well. But uh, without being knowing the actual timeline for Debo Samuel's return, those two guys kind of just become flyers. I use more of like a little bit more upside at intrigue. But this is still a pass-first offense. It's not going to be a high-volume offense. And we still know that the passing game itself, even when Samuel's going to be there, was going to run through George Kittle in the first place. Yeah, this is pretty much just uh, going to be a complete Kittle show. Um, I don't think there's really anything that was going to take that away with uh, with even Samuel on the field. Um, and we, ha- we have absolutely no idea. This is one of the things where we don't really know, well, who is going to take over? We haven't had any workouts where we've even seen, like, who is going to be the wide receiver two on this team? We, we would have no idea. So we don't know who would take over as the wide receiver one without Debo. Uh, on the field, it, it could be Ayuk. Obviously, it could be Jalen Hurd. Um, you know, Juwan Jennings is is a guy I brought up. We haven't done this podcast uh, long enough for me to like really get into my um, just excessive uh, hyping of late round wide receivers who I just love for really no reason. Uh, but Juwan Jennings, one of those guys. So I'm just going to throw him out there as as that slot guy who can uh, have that uh, catch run after the catchability, but you know, we'll see. It's just something, one of those things where we're just going to have to monitor because we have so much less information than we usually do, especially at this time of the year. So, so we're just going to have to see, but if you were into George Kittle, be more into George Kittle now. Um, so the main topic of our show today is going to be some running backs and, and how we're going to handle some guys uh, and their stocks. Rich has been doing a whole bunch of stuff on the site so far. We've brought it up pretty much every week of these dynasty buy, sell, or hold. And we're going to be looking at some of the running backs uh, he's either looked at or will be looking at. And guys just we're trying to just find find their, their price, their value, and how we should be thinking about what they're 
um, what the role is going to be and, and how we should value that going forward, either for Dynasty or just for, for season one going forward. So first guy we're going to start with is Austin Eckler. Uh, he's made a living off of efficiency. He was usually that second running back and got a bigger role last year when Melvin Gordon uh, held out. Um, but last year, even, even more so that efficiency. Uh, how are we going to handle his uh, increase in usage and paired with uh, that efficiency that might not last uh, as much as it does when he's getting that bigger role? And of course, new quarterback for the Chargers. So how, how are we putting all of that together and viewing what you think Eckler can do? Eckler's a really intriguing guy because, I mean, this is a – and some of these guys that we're going to talk about, I mean, they're, they're genuinely really good football players, which is what makes them kind of more polarizing. You know, everyone's – and these guys are priced highly. So, uh, you know, they're kind of interesting guys to have a conversation about. Eckler himself, I mean, even for as good as he's been his first three years in the NFL, I mean, last year was just absolutely insane to operate on, like, the, the efficiency level that he did. He averaged 9.2 yards per target after averaging 7.7 yards per target his first two years. He caught 85% of his targets after 75% uh, his first two seasons. He had eight receiving touchdowns, which is the most by a running back since Marshall Falk in 2001. Um, and then if you follow a guy like Hayden Winks on Roto World, he uh, also had the highest yards after catch uh, above expectation uh, in the NFL last season. So, I mean, even for a guy that has run historically hot in efficiency department, Eckler was just, I mean, he was orbiting the sun last year. Um, he, he you look at his splits now, when you see that type of efficiency and you look at his splits in those seven games that Melvin Gordon has been out uh, the past two years, uh, he's averaged 20.1 uh, opportunities per game, touches and targets uh, per game. But when you look at the kind of backs that the Chargers have had in those games, because remember, he climbed from the depth chart from the RB2 to the RB1, so the guys behind him also got elevated too. And Gordon was like really only the only bigger back that that team has had the past couple of years. The other guys that shared the workloads with Austin Eckler uh, were Justin Jackson, a guy who's taller but just 200 pounds, uh, and Triomaine Pope, who is, you know, 205 and 5'9". So they haven't really had a bigger body back. So it, it, by necessity, they haven't really been able to say, well, like, we're going to split this role up with a bigger guy like they had with Gordon. So, I mean, maybe Josh Kelly is that guy. But he's still, you know, unproven. So we don't know. I mean, having a rookie instead of a veteran, I think it's a good thing for Austin Eckler. Uh, does that mean that J Josh Kelly, his size, you know, being a 212-pound back might get some shots at some goal line carries? Yeah, probably it does. But uh, we don't know for sure. You know, and Eckler's a guy who's he's only converted four of 13 carries inside the five-yard line for touchdowns in his career. But outside of Kelly, those other guys are all smaller backs too on this roster. So it's, it's not that he – is just going to be totally wiped out of those either. He might get first crack at those. We don't really know. Uh, but for me, the, the quarterback change is kind of a big deal, not just for Eckler himself. Eckler is going to raise the tide of a, a Tyrod Taylor and a Justin Herbert, two guys who haven't really historically thrown the ball to their running backs. I know that uh, LaShawn McCoy had a really good receiving season one year uh, with the Buffalo with and led the team in targets, actually, with Tyrod as quarterback. But that team also – didn't have nowhere near the caliber of wide receiver play that this Chargers team has, or even the tight end play. Uh, when you look at the guys that were the, you know, the highest targets on like that 2017 Bills team, there's, there's no one here. Uh, Philip Rivers is a guy that when you look at quarterbacks, uh, you know, for the careers, trails only Drew Brees and Mitchell Trubisky of all people uh, in percentage of throws to uh, running backs. So, I mean, getting a guys that are a little more mobile and don't get, you know, you're not, you lose some of those check downs. We saw it last year, even with Daniel Jones and Saquon, you lose a little bit of those check downs, just, just enough 
to shave a little bit off the top. I mean, Eckler's going to force those guys as good as he is to throw the ball to running backs more. Uh, but there's also going to be like a shaving of targets and some of that efficiency we talked about earlier. But the big thing is, you know, the loss of Phillip Rivers and what this does, for what the signal is for this team, and what they want to do. I mean, you look at Anthony Lynn um, since joining the Chargers in 2017 previously – his four years as the Jets and Bills as a OC and running backs coach. I mean, their teams were 30th, 30th, 25th, and 29th in overall passing plays run per season. Tyrod was the starting quarterback in three of those years as the primary quarterback. And his teams threw 476 passes or fewer in all those seasons. Uh, you look at the past three years under Lynn with Phillip Rivers, they've been at 597, 512, 583 passes. And when you just pair this with the moves the Chargers made this offseason, I mean, they trade for Trey Turner, they signed Brian Bulaga, they signed Linval Joseph, Chris Harris, Nick Vigil, and for agency. This is where the signal is. They want to win through defense and probably controlling game script a little more than some of the, you know, throwing throwing uh, so heavily than they've done over 500 pass attempts in those that stretch, especially the way Phillip Rivers wasn't protecting the football and throwing that much as well. So, I mean, the transition definitely seems to signal that they want to play defense, run the ball more. Eckler's probably going to – their team's going to run fewer plays. He's going to have a reduction in passes. But, uh, like you said, he's, he's going to have more. He's probably going to have a career high in touches for the fourth straight year. He had 224 last year. I'd expect him to be in, like, the 240, 260 range um, and still probably catch 50-plus passes, which in a full PPR league is going to have him still right on the cusp of that RB1, uh, you know, value. There's probably a little more volatility week to week than we had from him last year. And it's interesting, especially with, with those uh, receptions. I was actually kind of watching a little bit uh, of Eckler uh, early this weekend over the weekend. And one thing that kind of stood out is, is how the Chargers were getting him the ball, which is something that I think is a positive going forward, especially the way they split him outside. So I was looking at uh, running back targets from empty. So it's when a running back is on the field, but not in the backfield. Um, the target leader's last year were James White with 23, Austin Eckler with 22, Christian McCaffrey with 21. They were around the same in receptions also. Christian McCaffrey had 18, White and Eckler both had 17. Um, but in yards, Eckler led those three with 265 yards on those plays. Christian McCaffrey was second with 160. So that's more than a hundred yard difference with the same receptions, almost nearly the same targets. James White was down at 134. And part of that is Eckler can legitimately move when he's on the outside. Uh, you watch uh, one play against Tennessee. Um, he uh, is just out, out wide to start the play. He does a little hesitation, brings the corner in and he's down the field uh, for a, a touchdown. It was a long 40 yard gain. He does a similar thing with Detroit starts in the backfield motions out to the outside they get an advantageous uh matchup against the safety a little hesitation brings the safety in and he's again behind him he's, he's a guy who can do that I think Tyrod Taylor has a pretty good deep arm he didn't use it enough in Buffalo because a lot of times they're just uh we're not enough people to throw deep too when Sammy Watkins was on the field he would do it and that was a good passing offense but Sammy Watkins was not often on the field uh, to do that. So I think that's something that they can exploit. And if you're looking for, you know, some boom to Eckler's game, you're going to have those, those types of plays. And I think that's something that's definitely ingrained in the offense and something that I think they might be looking forward to continuing to do, uh, especially to, to spread the field out a little bit and help whichever quarterback is going to be on the field. And the Tennessee game sticks out. I mean, that's the one where he had the touchdown called back. And then Melvin Gordon, it was Melvin Gordon's first game back, and they tried to get Gordon that touchdown so hard, and he ended up fumbling on the goal line to lose the game. Uh, they gave him, like, three or four straight carries from the one-yard line. But I thought Eckler scored, and they actually reversed it. It was crazy. 
Yeah, he, he had a couple of, of long receptions uh, in that game. It was it was a big uh, it was a big game for him and something we could possibly see going forward. Um, but while Eckler does not have to worry about Melvin Gordon right now, uh, let's go to someone who does have to worry about a, another running back on the roster, and that's Nick Chubb. I think you look at some circles uh, of analysis around the league, and some people might say that Nick Chubb is legitimately the best running back in the league right now. But he saw a significant role change when Kareem Hunt uh, returned from his suspension. Are we still going to act like Chubb is a fantasy running back one um, while Hunt is on the field? Or is Hunt someone we should be targeting at his cost over getting Chubb where, where he might be valued? Chubb is in, you know, he's in a similar spot to where he's got to accrue his points like Derrick Henry, except for Derrick Henry, he's got a lot more competition than Derrick Henry. Uh, you know, when, when, when Chubb was sharing the backfield with Dontrell Hilliard and the mighty D. Ernest Johnson, I mean, he was just dominating the, the snaps and touches for Cleveland. And, you know, as you would expect, uh, you know, he had 82% of team rushing attempts those first eight weeks. There was no way that was going to be sustainable. Even when you factor in what he did with Kareem Hunt, he still led all running backs in, uh, you know, uh, percentage of, you know, backfield rushing attempts or team rushing attempts overall. Uh, so, I mean, that wasn't going to hold. But even with Hunt, when Hunt came back, he handled 69.9% of the team carries. That, over the full course of the season, would have been third in the league behind Christian McCaffrey and Joe Mixon. Uh, so, I mean, there was still a lot of opportunity that Nick Chubb was getting. Uh, the only problem was that Kareem Hunt just completely sapped his role in the passing game. I mean, Chubb had one or fewer catches in six of the final eight games. Uh, his target share went from a little under 12% to under 7%. Uh, and he was forced to, you know, score all his points rushing, like we talked about. He had just 22.7 PPR receiving points after Kareem Hunt after 41.4 uh, prior to that. So, I mean, that just that's just not enough to carry you. And then when you factor in Chubb just completely – ran so cold on the on the goal line last year I mean he's you know if it wasn't for Leonard Fournette we'd be talking probably a little bit about how cold Nick Chubb went but Leonard Fournette was so bad near the goal line it kind of masked how bad you know Chubb was I mean Chubb only scored in two of his final 10 games played but he handled 15 of the 19 team rushing attempts inside the 10 yard line Kareem Hunt had just two inside the five yard line over that span Nick Chubb had 10 of the 12 team carries um, but he, he scored on Zero of those 10 carries. Uh, league rate is converting 48.1% of those carries inside the five for touchdowns. Uh, and, you know, over that span, he converted zero. So kind of kind of some bad luck. I definitely was one, you know, segment versus the, the Bills. Particularly, he couldn't get in on, like, any play, uh, if anyone remembers, like, that sequence of events. Uh, but, you know, yeah, so he ran cold in the scoring, in the scoring department as well. But, I mean, you look at Nick Chubb, this, this guy is a legit, like you said, uh, he's, he's a threat for may, arguably being one of the best running backs in the league. I mean, since he became the starter in week seven of his rookie season, only Derrick Henry has more rushing yards uh, than Nick Chubbs. Two, uh, 2,317 rushing yards. Derrick Henry has 23,59. Only Christian McCaffrey and Ezekiel Elliott have more yards of scrimmage than Nick Chubbs over that span. Uh, and he's seventh in total PPR points. Um, so now we bring in Kevin Stefanski. We just don't know how this offense is going to operate in, in, in the terms of splitting up these guys. We've seen a lot of the initial talk around Kareem Hunt has been more praising Hunt's receiving acumen. But we just can't take what the Vikings did in 2019 and say hey, they used Dalvin Cook and Alexander Madison this way. This is what they're going to do with Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. There's, that's, that's, not, that's hustling backwards. It's not going to get us to where we need to go. Um, but I think that, you know, Hunt is def or Chubb himself is definitely due some scoring regression, and he's got kind of that, you know, um, 
that rushing upside that can float him, but he's in that, you know, Derrick Henry, Josh Jacobs, maybe Josh Jacobs is a little more apt comparison than maybe uh, Derrick Henry, just in terms of like volume and then like probably the kind of receiving role he may have. Uh, so that kind of freezes him out of probably potentially becoming like a top five, top 10 back. Like he, he was over the front half of last season, but uh, you know, when you factor in cost, like Chubbs or cream uh, hunt, I keep mixing them up. Cream hunt is just totally more appealing. You know, his, his cost is more popular. You're getting him at flex level pricing. He already offers flex, you know, weekly value. He's not a guy that's just the, uh, just the pure handcuffs. So you're getting flex value. And then if something were to happen to Nick Chubb, uh, you know, he would elevate immediately up to being an RB1 on a weekly level. So when you factor in cost, a guy like Kareem Hunt and his range of outcomes is just a lot more palatable than striking, you know, in that first first round, second round turn on Nick Chubb and just hoping you get enough receptions and enough touchdowns to kind of float you, uh, float your draft capital investment. Yeah, this is another place where we just we don't know what this offense is going to look like. If we had some, you know, mini camp or an OTA or or some type of thing, we might get some look at how they were going to use these two together or or something like that. But since we, we have nothing, it's been a whole virtual offseason. That's where we would really lose um, that that type of on field look, even even if it's just a glimpse. We, we have no idea. And when you look at when you try to put that Stefanski Vikings offense, I mean, they were running, you know, one wide receiver sometimes because they only had one good one, um, depending on, you know, who was injured at the time. So they were running, you know, a lot of 12, a lot of 21 because they didn't, they didn't have another choice. They didn't have three wide receivers to put out on the field. Um, but we, we can see that with the signing of, of Austin Hooper, they're probably going to want to put a little more 12. So maybe that takes out uh, the 21 they were going to do with Hunt and Chubb on the field at the same time. You look at their, their target splits on uh, the second half of the season from weeks 9 to 17. Targets went Jarvis Landry, 83. Odell Beckham, 73. Kareem Hunt, 44. And Nick Chubb down at 22. Um, and then the next guy was Demetrius Harris at 17. You're going to figure the tight ends for this team are going to probably cut into that also. So we just don't know. So if you're looking at that running back one type of thing, we, we just don't know if Chubb is going to be able to do that. He's an incredible player. Is just one of those incredible players that might not work out for fantasy, how we project he should be working out on the field. Um, so let's move on to our next guy. And that's going to be Aaron Jones. Saw his usage rise every year. Uh, was a huge part of the Packers offense uh, last year, almost by default, because without Devontae Adams, they did not have a lot of options. And his role was completely different with and without Devontae Adams. So uh, we also have no idea what the Packers are doing, just in general, um, just doing. <laughs> um, so how do we project Jones, what do we think his role is going to be? Uh, he can't be as touchdown dependent as he was last year. So how are we viewing um, this entire just uh, mess of, of an offense right now? That's where we start. Cause that's the scariest part with Aaron Jones is that we inherently knew he's going to have scoring regression anyway. So it's the guy, he, he matched Christian McCaffrey with 19 touchdowns, you know, on the season. He had a league high 16 rushing attempts from the one or two yard line last year. Uh, which is just, you know, that's basically relying on the offense, what? Getting there to the one or two yard line. You know, sometimes you, you end up scoring before you get to the one or two yard line. We saw the Saints do that this year and it was a big factor in, you know, Alvin Kamara's, you know, scoring output. Uh, and then you factor in that last year, while he had 16 of those carries from the one or two yard line, uh, Jamal Williams only had two such carries from that area on the field. Now, Green Bay just selected a six foot, 
247 pound locomotive and AJ Dillon in the second round. I mean, when you have a 247 pound back, I mean, you have to think that coaches are going to fall in love and just try to pigeonhole that guy into being a short yardage back. So, I mean, there's one way, even if he, the team was going to have that many carries from that section of the field, that his split was not going to be that dominant, even if he was the favorite. And then if you lose, some some touchdowns. I mean, 36.2 of his PPR points last year came from touchdowns alone. For context, uh, touchdown scoring percentage in the top 12 backs since 2000 is just 24.3 percent of their scoring. And you look at some of the peers, the top guys. Chris McCaffrey last year was 24.2 percent. Uh, Ezekiel at 26.9 percent. Dalvin Cook 26.7 percent. Those guys were well below a guy like you know Aaron Jones's dependency on touchdowns, and he scored on you know just under seven percent of his touches. Uh, so I mean, when you look at that that scoring acumen on the amount of touches, though, that that's where it comes troubling because he Jones still didn't touch the ball like other top shelf running backs did in the NFL last year. He was third in fantasy points per game, but he averaged just 17.8 touches per game, which was 14th at the position. He had 63.8% of the Green Bay backfield touches. That ranked 13th among running backs. Uh, so, I mean, he's getting running back two usage, but touchdowns got him to that top, you know, top five level. So if we want to lose those touchdowns, that's a problem. And they, the, the cool thing about Jones is that, He's improved every year in the NFL. And where he's really improved is in, you know, pass protection in the receiving game. That was his biggest knock coming out. You know, remember Jamal Williams is going to be on the field because he could pass pro. Aaron Jones wasn't that good of a receiver. Uh, he was awful his first year in the NFL as a receiver. He's gotten better every year. And last year he was he, he was second on the team in targets. And he was actually their wide receiver one when Devontae Adams was out for that four-game stretch last season. He led the team across the board in, you know, targets, receptions, and receiving yards. But when you look at when Devontae Adams played, his receiving splits are pretty jarring. And he went from 20% of the team targets uh, to 10.1% of the team targets with Adams on the field. He averages 4.4 PPR receiving points per game in the 14 games Devontae Adams played, as opposed to 17 PPR receiving points per game in those games that Devontae Adams um, was out. So that definitely skewed a lot of his production uh, in the receiving game. So if we lose that, and we already talked about his touch value, which isn't as high as some of these other guys that are locked in established guys even with nobody getting 300 carries or 300 touches more in the NFL outside of a few players he was still at that RB2 level usage so I mean I'm really scared of Aaron Jones uh you know I think I, I'll still nibble on him a little bit in some best balls and um we talked about it when we talked about Devontae Adams on this show uh, you know a month or two ago or six weeks ago uh that we kind of I mean you were kind of in agreement but you just kind of uh you, the Packers just overextended their 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 win total so much last year and based on how they played their expected win total this year, they only have a nine were projected for nine wins, which is well below the 13 games they won last year, no matter what they're signaling and how they want to operate. This is a team that's going to have worse game script than it had a year ago. Uh, so it's also a team that's probably not going to run the ball as much as, you know, the signal is right now early in the offseason, what people believe. Uh, so I think out of the guys we've talked about so far, Aaron Jones is by far the sketchiest of the three that we talked about. Um, it's a bummer because I really like Aaron Jones, the football player as well. Yeah, just another just example of a good football player, a guy we would you know like on our team uh, if that were possible, but just a terrible, absolutely a terrible just a fantasy situation, a possibly terrible real life situation too, uh, depending on how far the Packers want to go into, uh, however far they're going into this uh, we want to uh, run the ball uh, all the time and be this this heavy 
um, heavy run first team that has, you know, Aaron Rodgers, obviously it's still not peak Aaron Rodgers, but when you have that, uh, I'm not sure why you want to be uh, pounding the ball um, all the time. But that, that's, I think that's what we're going to see with Green Bay. I kind of I wonder how much that is going to uh, continue and just sap the efficiency. And what we would think, you know, Green Bay still does not really have a wide receiver too. So you would, you would think they would like to, you know, get Jones the ball a little more, but that just not, does not seem to be, um, you know, the, the story we're getting told out of Green Bay. So that, yeah, that's a, that's a wait and see. And since we don't have that information, we don't really have time to wait and see for, for some of these things, especially like before we, we draft now and where we have to be selling and buying these guys in Dynasty. Um, it, Aaron Jones, yeah, just kind of seems like a complete stay away. Let's go to a, one more guy who's has um, definitely um, – embraced uh, his team going full uh, pound the rock. Uh, and that is Derek Henry. Uh, for the first time, he really got the, the lead role here. There was much less of Deion Lewis. There was way more Derek Henry and the Tennessee offense uh, was good. Uh, he had that late season surge uh, that was much better than his late season output. That was part of when Ryan Tannehill came in and the passing offense was also much better. That helped him out. So is Henry just a player that's going to be in this unique situation where he's going to be able to get so much of this value running the ball um, without so much receiving as he's done in the past? Um, or is that something that uh, there's just a, a lower floor that we just kind of maybe have to deal with when we're talking about Henry? We absolutely know what the Titans want to do. It's how much are they going to be able to execute it, especially on the level that they did over the back half of 2019. Because we got an inkling when they finally were going to go all in on Derrick Henry at the end of the 2018 season, those final you know five games. Remember that season? There was a stretch that year where they actually played Deion Lewis as like a bell cow back in that 2018 season. And then they kind of like – got religion and say, hey, we've got this this absolute monster. We start giving him the ball. And remember, it kind of kicked off on that Thursday night game, the yearly Thursday night Titans-Jaguars game that we're getting robbed of this season. Uh, you know, that kind of got, got the ball rolling. But we expected it to start off last year. But when we saw the fragility, one of this approach again, and, it, you know, Marcus Mariota didn't play good. But over the first nine games of the season, Derrick Henry only had 643 rushing yards. He only ran for 100 yards in one game over that stretch and then he just went bonkers the final nine weeks of the year when Tannehill came in and they got hot he ran for 1342 yards his final nine games of the season um you know and like I said he his first nine he had 643 yards that's, a, that's just crazy splits and like we're used to him getting better as the season goes on I mean 40 percent of Derrick Henry's career rushing yards just come in just December games alone uh you know so he's one of those guys you know that, that fits the old narrative that we know really isn't like a, it's a correlation cause causation thing but he is put up all his production towards the end of seasons. Um, and it's really crazy because, like we said, the Titans, we know how they want to operate. And we know that Derrick Henry is not going to be involved in the passing game at all. He's a one-note running back, and he had all the success. Uh, you know, today's, you know, top running backs are guys that, you know, can do a little bit of everything. That's the guys that have these high ceilings, and he was a guy that had a high ceiling without it. Um, he ranges 194 pass routes last year. That was 36 at the position. He has just 57 catches, you know, uh, you know, through four NFL seasons. And he does have some efficiency receiving, but it's because he just catches like a, a screen pass and gets like these huge chunk plays over the course of the season and has such low volume that carries it. It's kind of how like Leonard Fournette's efficiency looked, you know, early in his career. And you see when you have exactly to do – Exactly what I was thinking. 
And when you have to check it down a hundred times to a guy like that, that if you see like he's not that type of player. Remember, there's a there's a difference between being able to show that you're capable of catching the football and adding value catching the football out of the backfield. And uh, some of Derrick Henry's volume has masked some of his efficiency. Uh, but, you know, 94% of his regular season touches uh, came through the rushing game. Uh, that was only behind Marlon Mack, Gus Edwards, Sony Michelle, Carlos Hyde, and Benny Snell for all backs in the league with 100-plus touches. Uh, you know, so we know he's only going to get it his touches one way but the reason he's able to get by is because like Aaron Jones he's just been a touchdown machine over his past 23 games he's got 28 total touchdowns that's crazy we talked about Henry or Aaron Jones what's 32.6 percent of Henry's PPR scoring came via rushing touchdowns alone not just total touchdowns rushing touchdowns that was the highest dependency of top 12 scores um the average rushing touchdown makeup uh for RB1s of the same so we talked about it's only 18.2 percent so he doubled it uh, last year. Uh, you know, he is a good touchdown scorer. I mean, he scored in 45% of his career NFL games played, but he has 34 career games now without a touchdown. And in those 34 career games without a touchdown, Derrick Henry's never once had a top 24 scoring week in any of those weeks because he doesn't get those catches to help his floor. So if he don't score, if he doesn't score a touchdown in your game, his floor is an RB3. He, go, he falls immediately from RB1 to RB3. Um, and you look at last year, he had six more touchdown, rushing touchdowns and expectations. Hey, 10 rushing touchdowns as opposed to 16 is still really good. And, you know, if you project him for 10 touchdowns, it's going to be something in the mix to potentially lead the league. But this is another team now on a team level that has just due is screaming for aggression. The Titans scored a touchdown on 35% of their offensive drives under Ryan Tannehill, was second in the league in the NFL that span by the Ravens. League average rate was 22% that span. And then if you just want to see how bonkers it was that they were scoring touchdowns with Tannehill uh, in the regular season, they scored a touchdown on 26 of 30 of their red zone possessions, 26 of 30. It's 87%. It's absolutely insane. League average is 49% or 59.1%. And then, um, you know, 31% of those drives ended in a field goal. The Titans only kicked one field goal on those 30 possessions. They never once got like, you know, uh, a holding call or anything. They kicked one field goal on 30 offensive scoring possessions in the red zone at span. Uh, so if you look at, you know, teams that have scored uh, on 70% of their red zone touch it, uh, possessions over the last 10 seasons, the following season, uh, all 12 of those teams uh, lost touchdowns the following season, scored fewer touchdowns and scored a fewer rate in the red zone. Uh, the average team total of touchdowns lost per season among those teams was 12 uh, total touchdowns lost. So, I mean, there's going to be some scoring regression. Anytime there's scoring regression on a team level, factoring to a guy that was a little bit touchdown dependent as a fantasy level, there's a little bit lower floor um, than you'd assume, even though it is a hundred percent fact that Derrick Henry is in a situation to accentuate what he does best uh, in his style of football. But like you said, if the, if the Titans run a little bit colder than we expect on a team level, and they don't win games and you kind of, aren't able to keep him going into games and keep beating teams over the head with runs. Uh, you know, you need those touchdowns to float you uh, on some of those weeks. He doesn't touch the ball as much as game script would allow him as it did, you know, towards the end of last season. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. You have to kind of figure out what this Tennessee offense is going to be in general to kind of figure out what Derrick Henry is going to do. And it's a little bit of, of a chicken and the egg thing. Last year when the Titans were running against stack boxes, Derrick Henry actually had positive uh, EPA, which is uh, incredibly rare. Running backs usually don't have positive EPA just on regular runs. So to have positive EPA on 
runs against stacked boxes. Uh, that is impressive. And that's kind of the type of back Derrick Henry is. But so much of what made the Titans offense successful is when they threw against those stacked boxes, when the defense was coming up to stop the run, the Titans were first in EPA per play throwing against stacked boxes by like a wide margin. Uh, during the playoff run, um, Nate Weller of Sports Info Solutions wrote a, a post about this uh, on Sharp Football Analysis, uh, which you can see. And so much of their uh, ability to score came from taking advantage of passing against those stack boxes. So you wonder uh, if the Titans aren't able to pass quite as well, they might not be able to have Derrick Henry uh, running as well. The defense might not load up the box, so the offense might not be able to take advantage of those stack boxes while throwing. So there's, there's so much chicken and the egg going on of trying to figure out uh, what really makes what run in that Tennessee offense because Derrick Henry didn't start running well until Ryan Tannehill took over and that passing offense took off. So it's not like Derrick Henry was really the reason the passing offense took off. It, it was, it was all, it all came together. And when we're expecting regression from Ryan Tannehill, I mean, I wrote a post about him in November about how he was just exceeding um, expectations of so much of his career norm. And I don't think that's something we can, expect to continue going forward, especially his intermediate passing, which is out of this world compared to, I mean, we have a large sample size of Ryan Tannehill. Um, and the t last year's Tennessee, Ryan Tannehill was just completely out of the ordinary. So we have to expect that to come down. That is going to have a big impact on the running game and Derrick Henry. So there might not be those end of end of the game runs where Henry was able to break off. And that's I think that's one thing where they had such a big boom uh, potential on those stack box runs because once Derrick Henry got through that second level, uh, he was gone. And I think that that happens a lot. And that only is going to happen if the passing offense is able to get them a lead early in games and I'm just not sure if they're going to be able to do that yeah absolutely I mean like one thing that Henry has going for him and it's like we talked about a little bit with the Ecklers that he's I mean he's got little competition here and uh you know it just depends and see if they if game script if, if Darrington Evans is really going to be in that you know role and really see how many touches he's going to snaps that he's going to play as like an ancillary component uh but they did invest into Darrington Evans you know as a third round pick so I mean uh I'd expect him to get on the field some so it's gonna be interesting to see how it works out but uh yeah. Um, so, I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's pretty much uh, the most interesting guys. I, and, you know, Joe Mixon fits this mold as well, but we talked about him two episodes ago, so I didn't want to rehash him in the conversation there. But I think he also fits a little bit of the polarizing RB1 mold. So if you want to hear the takes on Joe Mixon, you know, go back a couple of year, weeks ago uh, to our mis Misused Players uh, podcast. Yeah, and kind of like we talked about, there's, only, there's so few running backs who really have this this high workload uh, who are going to be those workhorses that we can really trust to be RB1. So that's why we have to talk about so many of these guys, because you kind of have to have to pick your poison and kind of see which situation you feel more comfortable with. And a lot of these guys are going to be falling um, in that the category. And a lot of drafters were going, you guys are going to be having to look at these guys in a certain range where you're thinking about taking a running back. You have to weigh all these things. So um, that's a great reason why we have Rich. And he walks us through all of this to make us better prepared uh, for when we have to come to these decisions. So that is going to be it 
for us today. Uh, please rate and review this podcast. Uh, if you have not, it helps us out greatly. Uh, we really appreciate it. You can read all our work on Sharp Football Analysis. Uh, you can now get a free chapter of Warren Sharp's 2020 uh, football preview. All of his chapters are in there. Rich is going to be in there with uh, some more fantasy, uh, more fantasy than has been in the books previously. Uh, you can get a free chapter on the Pittsburgh Steelers on the website right now. That full book is going to be out uh, in early July. So uh, keep an eye out for that. You can pre-order it also on the site. So if you would like to go do that also, um, you can follow Rich on Twitter at, or Reeves. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Pizzuta. Thank you guys for listening and we will talk to you again soon. 